Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Martin Gurry. He's an author, geopolitical analyst, and former CIA. Martin, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you're doing and getting your thoughts on a bunch of things right now is very much relevant to what we're facing. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Well, actually, I'm, uh, I am I was born in Cuba. Oh, interesting. So I um, I came here as a, as a kid. And otherwise, I'm pretty much a creature of the swamp. I mean, I live in <laughs> I live in Northern Virginia, okay, um, which is where many of us swamp denizens tend to gather. And I worked my entire career uh, in government, as you say, as a as a CIA analyst. Um, so I'm a I'm a Washington D.C. guy, but really Northern Virginia. Uh, and, uh, uh, my wife and uh, I, I met here in, in the high school and, um, Very cool. pretty much has been, uh, I'm, I'm a local boy. I've traveled a lot, but usually come back here. Very cool. So you went to university. What did you take and why? Right. Oh, that's a really good question in more ways than the one that you probably, gonna, <laughs> you're probably going to ask me to stop talking in a minute. No, no, it'll be good. I'm interested in my answer. I was a, a history guy. Okay. okay. I was history. I went to George Mason University right here, okay. um, and uh, I was a history uh, major and a history. I got my master's in history there as well. What, and what got you passionate about history? Well, I mean, I did a big long post recently on the importance of understanding history. Okay. Uh, at any time, if you want to achieve anything in a society and um, the sense that today there is sort of a war against memory that, that we're trying to eradicate our memory of history history seems to be looked on as kind of like the mother of injustice interesting uh, all the bad things seem to come from there we all know that there were all these racists and all these bigots and these fascists and slave owners and all kinds of terrible people who really did exist back then but that is used as a pretext for Basically thinking we just have to transcend history. We have to repudiate history. Understanding it makes no sense. It's almost immoral. Uh, so, and I, I think, and I hope I give some examples in my post, uh, that that you lose what, what um, Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, said, the dimension of depth in, in human experience when you have no history. You become kind of like... You know, a person without a memory is like like a shadow on a screen, uh, and a country without a history is sort of like a a shallow puddle that any wind can evaporate. You know what I mean? Sure. So, yeah. so um, if you want to, if if you if there are forces that you find are unjust or or um, abusive or uh, not uh, conforming to some ideal that you have, 
you cannot just get there by basically lobotomizing yourself. You can only get there by understanding how we got here and how we could get out of it. And, and I find like this is, uh, you'll hear me talk a lot about a crisis of authority as being um, uh, probably the central political issue of our moment. Okay. And, I think, and I think in part, the crisis of authority is a, a loss of historical memory and the recovery of uh, memory and the restoration of authority are probably the same project. Okay, interesting. But maybe before we dive into that a little bit deeper, I, I did cut you off there and you were talking about um, your university career. So do you want to maybe finish that and then talk about your career with some career highlights along the way up until what you're doing now and then we'll dive into all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I'm not really that exciting a person. I thought my, my, my university career was normal. I kiss butt with a lot of professors and, and got my grades and uh, learned something along the way. Um, my career in CIA was an interesting one. I, mean, I always, I always um, describe myself as having had probably the least glamorous job in CIA. You know, everybody, okay. whenever Why do you I say talk that? Well, you know, people think of CIA as license to kill and spy versus spy. I, I, I was a, an analyst of global events, okay? Of global, okay. Of, sorry, of global, of global media, of global media. Um, so my, my particular shop, my corner of CIA, um, the media of the world funneled into this place, and then there was a lot of translation that went on for those of us who couldn't read every language in the world. Right. Um, so um, interestingly, that job when I started out was very, very fascinating, but but straightforward. If you, for example, if the president wanted to find out what what how my policy is playing in France, well, there was always there was first of all very limited amount of open information, and every country had some equivalent of the New York Times, a source that said the news agenda, right? So okay. everybody. It led the, the the parade, and everybody kind of followed suit. So if you wanted France, you you went to one newspaper, Le Monde, and that's all you had to do. You had this this limited source of information, and it was very structured in a very hierarchical way. Right. Then something happened, and and this is directly the cause of the book. Right. Um, around the turn of the new millennium. Yeah. A, a, a what what I've called a digital earthquake. Okay. Uh, I guess epicenter somewhere near Palo Alto, I would guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. Um, just unleashed a tsunami of information in volumes that were unprecedented in human experience. And, and that's not just a phrase. Measured in data bits, the year 2001 doubled the volume of information produced in the entire history of the human race, going back to the cave paintings, okay? Interesting. The year 2002 doubled 2001. Uh, that trend had more or less been maintained. And um, if you chart it and if you read the book, um, that, that, that chart is there. If you chart it, it, it looks like a gigantic wave, literally a tsunami. Interesting. Um, before we keep going, what's the title of the book and, and what made you actually decide to write a book? Right. Title is The Revolt of the Public uh, and the subtitle is um, The Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Okay. Uh, and what made me want to write that book was when I was back in CIA, uh, we watched, several of us, it wasn't just me, watched this tsunami sweep over the world. And right behind that, 
we saw increasing uh, levels of um, social and political turbulence. We heard, um, I guess you would call them angry voices, mocking voices in places. And you know, one example would be, for example, Egypt, um, where all there had been before was silence. And that, as I look back on it now, was the very first early warning signal of this public, the revolt of the public, of this yeah. public that has since then, of course, you know, knocked down um, dictators and smashed up old traditional political parties and, and, and of course, elected some outlandish uh, populists to office. Right. Uh, and so I left government and I kept what, but this is, I was lucky in, in, in my career that this was something that I did because I, I was very fascinated with it, not just because they gave me a paycheck every couple of weeks. Sure. Uh, uh, and so I kept doing what, what I was doing, and, and uh, I had the freedom to basically ask my own questions versus the ones that the government was interested in. And, and And then it became very clear around the year 2001, because one argument that was made when I was still in government and even uh, a little afterwards was, yeah, okay, so you have all these people who are um, speaking and look and sound very discontented and very even enraged uh, against the, the established order. But, I mean, it's virtual. They're all online. They're all on their laptops. So they're facing policemen and they're facing the military. So what are they going to do? Hit them with their laptops? So there's this joke going on that, yes, all oh, this is very interesting, but it has no real effect on on the world beyond virtual uh, digital world. So the year 2001, of course, saw the mis, uh, misnamed uh, Arab Spring. Many, many, many countries in each one of them, each instance from Tunisia to Egypt to uh, Yemen to um, Syria to Libya uh, and so on, um, each one of them Digital, the, the digital information sphere was was implicated in some cases very deeply in these in these revolts. Um, but then the same year, 2001, you saw the indignados. So you could, things moved to the, demo, the democratic world. Uh, you saw the indignados in Spain who crushed the, uh, in the end the, the um, socialist government that had been standing. You saw uh, a similar uh, um, sort of uprising in Israel. Uh, you saw the occupiers in the U.S., and even if you want to push it a little bit, the London riots of 2001, which used a, uh, a signaling system, you know, that that was that basically allowed the looters to stay ahead of the authorities in much the same way that all these other less criminal and more political insurgencies had done. So, 2011 kind of convinced me that this this was the phase change year, right? The phase change is what happens to water. Sure. As, at a certain moment, it's just water interacting with temperatures and suddenly it's ice, right? Sure. Well, sure. The, the phase change of 2011 was you had people angry, you know, burbling up on, on the digital uh, universe and suddenly they were on the streets. Okay. Now suddenly the, and governments were falling. Okay. So that persuaded me that there was uh, more to it. Uh, than than just people uh, basically moaning uh, online about their government, and I, I did a, a lot of research on that, and uh, the result is the is the book, which has an interesting history. Um, if you want to get into that a little bit, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I e-published because I felt like I didn't want to deal with 
editors or anything like that. So I published and, and it came out in 2014. Okay. And, and and had a pretty nice reception. And then 2015 and 2016 came. And Donald Trump, among other things, but Brexit also, uh, made lots of people um, basically say, oh, look, and I, what, I get accused a lot of having predicted Donald Trump. Well, I don't know if you've read the book or not, but basically... I, I, like, I've skimmed through it. I haven't read the whole thing. Well, in more than one place, I say that I don't believe in prophecy, right? I don't believe that yeah. you, you can't predict. I mean, and I come from CIA, and that was their business model was prophecy. They, they, they talk to the president and say, this is what's going to happen, Mr. President. And as long as tomorrow looks like yesterday, which is a lot of the time, to be fair, sure, they're good. The second that there is a discontinuity, which is, of course, what the president wants, another Pearl Harbor or 9-11 or something like that, yeah, they get it wrong. They get that wrong. It's just it can't be done. It's not a question of too much or too little information. It is for reasons that we won't get into here. I think, in principle, impossible to do. So I did not predict Donald Trump is what I'm getting at. But <laughs> I, 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 I laid out the forces and the, the, the structural momentum that made a person like Trump and a vote like Brexit possible. So that that was basically, I'm, I'm a Trump profiteer. The book really took off after Trump was elected. Um, and at a certain moment, I, I got a call from um, a an unknown person to me called Patrick Collison. Okay. Uh, saying he wanted to publish my book. Uh, I looked, looked up Patrick Collison. He is the CEO of, of Stripe. Right. He's, yep. at, the, at the time he was 29, I think he's 30 now. He is a very, very well, well-to-do person. He's basically a San Francisco-based guy. Sure. And, and he's a billionaire uh, now, for people who don't a, know. That's very much of a billionaire. Yes, <laughs> he's been uh, extremely successful, and I, their product is actually really great. I I use it all the time, and and I actually have a buddy that works there, so I know them very well. I have I have met him. He is oh, very cool. He is certifiably. I mean, if you look at his life history. He's certifiably a genius, yeah. but he comes across as some people are geniuses and you talk to them and you can't figure out what's going on inside their heads. <laughs> With him, it's not like that. He talks and he, he he's worth remembering what he says. Right? He's a very exceedingly, exceedingly effective uh, and articulate man, uh, even if half my age, by the way. But okay, we'll forgive him that. So, <laughs> so, um, so he was starting a new press, Stripe Press. Yeah. Uh, which uh, he wanted me to be one of the very first, I think, of the fourth book that they have published. Very cool. If you, if you ever see the book, uh, and I hope you have the physical book in your hands, and not not the, but either way, it's beautifully designed. It has that sort of San Francisco Silicon Valley sense of design to it. My ebook had a lot. It, it comes with a lot of illustrations, a lot of charts. Uh, uh, and, and somehow they have managed to turn all of that in, into a work of art. Just just to look at it is beautiful. Yeah, I just so that, have the digital copy, but it, the layer is really nice, actually, and the yeah. charts and stuff are, yeah. are well done. They are, for sure. And they're so, simple to, like, understand. That's right. the one thing I noticed about – because sometimes it's like, what am I looking at here? But in, right. in your case, I, I think they were all very easy to understand. Well, I one of the few things that I can claim to be an expert in, and 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 I, this is not false modesty, is visual persuasion. I was very lucky when I was still inside the government to be able to research that to death and actually right. design 
design methodologies that that uh, could could decode visual persuasion. So I, I always feel like text alone is a big bore. If you don't give the eye, if you don't give the eye something to to kind of um, get the image of the text, sure. Uh, you're sure ch changing your readers, I think. So the book was written with that in mind as well. Now that the new book came out in 2018, it does have a long essay, a long essay, about a fifth of the book now, at the end in which I look at the world after the publication of the, the, the ebook sure. with Trump, Trump and Brexit. But in particular, I deal with the crisis of authority uh, in, in um, I guess issues like fake news and and uh, the idea that we're living in a post-truth world uh, and how that relates to the original thesis of, of the crisis of authority. Sure. And it's done pretty well. The book is done pretty well. Oh, that's awesome, man. Congrats on, on your success with that. I, I'm curious, though, you, you, there's a quote that um, you guys sent me that really resonated with me since I first got introduced to you. And the, the quote was, Technology has categorically reversed the information balance of power between the public and the elites who manage the great hierarchical institutions of the information age, like governments, political parties, and the media. The, the thing that's interesting to me about that was, and, and why I love the internet so much, is it's literally removed all the borders. You have a global marketplace to build a company and get clients from. You can hire people across the globe. And to your point, you literally have access to the same amount of information and you can learn basically anything online for free or very inexpensive. Do you agree with that or what's your thoughts around that? Totally agree with that. And, and uh, if you want to dwell, because the book deals with some of the negative sides of, of sure there's of pros the, and cons yeah but but i mean uh, i am i am a big believer in in the enormous benefits of this of this connection the uh, the fact that you can make you can make human links um in the most amazing places i mean i get i, I get somebody from the ukraine they just had elections there and somebody tweets with my my tweet handle on it saying oh martin gurry look you were right about the ukraine i'm going and and um you know it's in cyrillic and i, I have no idea i have to use translators i, I don't, I don't. so you can make, <laughs> you make these connections um for some reason france is is absolutely i mean there are pockets of places that are really really um that really get the book and and are very very keen on it uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, those people, the, techno the technology people absolutely get it. The French, in some weird way, get it. I think because they, they needed an explanation so desperately of what was going on over there. Um, so I have these conversations across the world. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, I'm going to sound like, a, like what I am, which is a fairly old geezer. Um, <laughs> I, when I was in CIA, got posted to Paraguay. I was okay. in Paraguay. And when I went there, there was no email yet. Interesting. There, the, the, um, the Paraguayan Congress was debating this, this very strange thing called the Internet. And the question is, is this a good witch or a bad witch? You know, is this a good thing or a bad? I mean, in Paraguay, just by its history and its location, is fairly 
denuded of information. Okay, if you want to find, if you want to do serious research in Paraguay, you're kind of in trouble. And here they had all this access to basically the entire world's knowledge set. And they were wondering whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. Well, those were the elites. The elites could get their information, right? Um, they did the right thing and they allowed um, they allowed the internet to, to come in and email kicked in. And I went from a world in which it took me six weeks to get a letter back and forth between the time I posted a letter and I got a response from the US, six weeks had passed to instantaneous, okay? You have no idea what a change. So I saw that change in, in my life, uh, my lived experience. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually really quite fascinating. So I'm curious though, in this information age where people literally have access to everything and they can use that information for for good and bad and everywhere in between how do you or how do people understand and and actually figure out what's truthful and and what's not because i think that's really tricky sometimes for a lot of people and, and i would put myself in that right like a lot of people seem to read the side of the political spectrum that they follow and don't read the other side to at least form their own opinion all the time, right? And I think understanding where both sides are coming from can potentially make you understand the world better, but also open up your mind to get new clients and new products and actually potentially open up new business verticals. Do you agree with that or what are your thoughts around that? Well, I'll, I'll, I, I do agree with that. I, I will give you my definition of analysis. Okay, I mean, sure. I, that's what I have been my whole life. And I thought really hard because, you know, you get given all these ideals, objectivity and so forth. And you, you ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Um, I don't think it means much objectivity. I think analysis is the, the capacity to look at an event or an idea for a, as many perspectives, as many perspectives as you can possibly fit inside a single subjective human brain. Okay. And perspective, perspective is, is, is massively important. I can, I can take you to the top of the empire state building and show you this city that looks like the heavenly city down below, right? New York city, Manhattan, or I can take, take you all the way down to the curb where um, the, the cars are honking and the, 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 the um, homeless person is puking on the sidewalk and it looks like hell, right? It, sure. it, is, the same, it is the same city. It's not a, that reality is malleable or changeable. It's just a question of what is your perspective? So insofar as if you could do 360 degree perspective, you would have this, the largest amount of analytic insight into an event or an idea you can. I don't think anybody can do that. I don't think we can put ourselves into you know, very extreme circumstances, uh, probably just as well we can't, but to the extent that you can, that, that is, that is, uh, so now what's happened to us in our moment is, uh, as, as I, you know, relate in the book, there has, we were given a perspective in the old days, right? It, it was, it was easy for us. Right. We had Walter, we had Walter Cronkite and his and his kind, or the New York Times and their kind, and this is all the news that's fit to print. Here it is. This is it. This is the perspective. You don't need to think any harder. We're giving it to you. Okay. So there was a kind of a 
fiction that a mass audience existed and the mass audience, it was like we would look into this gigantic mirror and we all looked the same. You know, we had to somehow or another, we, we all our differences had been planed out and we just received this information and this perspective and we accepted it. Well, what the digital world has done is it's taken that mirror and kind of thrown it on the floor. It's now in a thousand pieces. And you were talking about one side or the other. In fact, I think that's vastly oversimplifying. I think there are hundreds of perspective, political, just political perspectives. Sure. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so um, you can be mostly on the right, and you can belong to about dozens of flavors of that. Sure. You can be on the left, and and be on dozens of flavors of that. Um, and each one of these um, little war bands, I guess I call, I would call political war bands, is struggling to be heard. And um, I think more than what you talked about, which is living in an information bubble, I think it's almost impossible to do that. Um, but I think the problem is the noise deafens you because everybody's shouting. Everybody's shouting. The, the best way to get uh, noticed, to grab attention, is to criticize somebody in such vicious and, and, and horrific uh, terms that that person or their side returns the favor and starts yelling at you. And suddenly now you and they are engaged in this very loud match and the people behind you feel like they have to line up behind. So suddenly you are a leader in your group. Um, and that dynamic uh, goes all the way from some fairly marginal groups. But it's, I mean, it's what elected Donald Trump. It's what's made uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a thing. Uh, it is the dynamic of American politics today. Yeah, interesting. The whole, well, what's your thoughts around the whole fake news thing? Because it, it seems to me, and you can, obviously I want your thoughts on this, that everything could be labeled as fake news if you spin it in the 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 right angle right or or am i missing something there um again it's perspective right i mean yeah, sure there are some things that are falsehoods sure okay and there is a phenomenon i think is the case the question is are people being deluded by by lies i guess that would be the, the sure. blunt way the blunt way of stating it are, are, is is the american electorate being uh, fooled or bamboozled by liars in, in uh, say, Facebook news or something like that? Sure. And the, the answer is almost certainly not. Okay, sure. almost certainly not. The okay. People, people, there's no question that there are certain, uh, there, there are lies that, 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 that the internet is, is full of them. Uh, but anybody who consumes them almost certainly already believes what they're reading. So they're not being persuaded of anything. Interesting. They're, they, they are just kind of reassuring themselves. It's like food for the soul. Yes, they're right. Yeah, yeah. The famous case of Hillary Clinton was going to die because he had all these illnesses during the election. Yeah, well, that that was completely fake. Sure. But people read it, no doubt. None of them thought, oh, now I'm not going to vote for Hillary. They just thought, oh yeah, great. I'm against her anyway. Also, she's a sickly person, and one more reason not not to not to be with her. So, yeah. so. Um, the the deeper issue, honestly, you know, so if you want to talk about the Russians, yes, the Russians did intervene. They always do. Um, did they have any effect? Every bit of evidence I have seen says they had zero effect. They had absolutely no, uh, uh, I mean, ask yourself, 
if you are, um, I don't know, if you say a, a devout Catholic okay. and, and you read a fake news article in Facebook that says Catholics are, are, you know, horrible people who commit all these horrible crimes, but Islam is wonderful. Would you now go, oh, yeah, I guess I'm going to give up my religion and, and become uh, a Muslim? Nobody does that. Nobody gets persuaded out of their deeply held uh, moral and political beliefs because they've read a story in Facebook. And that is the case whether the story is true or fake. Uh, in that particular instance, it makes no difference. So I, don't think, so I don't think the Russians persuaded anybody or anything of anything. I think the deeper issue is, is the crisis of authority. Okay. The crisis, the crisis of authority, cannot help but trigger a crisis of uncertainty. I mean, look, reality is what it is. Is that Empire State Building in New York City? That doesn't change. But the job of mediating uh, between faraway reality and the public, of giving, I guess, the, the the flux of events meaning, that has always been the highest calling of the elites. And we should talk about the elites at some point. They were the authorities. So, you know, for example, Pearl Harbor was a day of infamy. It wasn't sure. the day wasn't the day that the U.S. Navy in the Pacific got caught with his pants down. All right. So, um, events have to be uh, mediated and explained. And those who do the explaining used to have the public's trust. When you look at, for example, uh, trust in government at the time of uh, JFK. It was always hovering between 70 and 80%, and it had been that way for quite a while. You look at it today, it's like between 20 and 30%, okay? The trust has been destroyed beyond recovery. The mediator class that conveys information, that had, used to have authority and information, journalists, politicians, academics, it's gone with the wind. So in a weird way, reality is, is up for grabs. Um, and the, as I said, the issue goes a lot deeper than, than Russia's on Facebook, a nation of 320 million. We need shared sources of meaning and share, shared interpretations of reality. I mean, we need to be able to argue as a democracy uh, from a common set of facts. But those who used to settle factual disputes have become have lost all credibility and they are perceived as fakers themselves. So what's, what's happened? Um, the truth in a weird way has started to unbundle. Um, uh, this sorts of the, the tends to happen, as you know, in, in the digital universe. Everything unbundles and persona, personalizes. So newspapers used to have a great big bundle of information. They have unbundled into individual stories. The old music albums that I used to enjoy in my youth sure. have now be, have now become personalized playlists. So now we have information playlists that people consume and highly personalized ideas about what the truth is. No, you're, you're right. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. YouTube got a bunch of slack in the last couple of years for um, what other people claim their, their videos were deleted, that were talking about certain things that YouTube said violated their terms of service. And I don't, it doesn't really matter what my opinion is, but my thought around it is if you publish something on somebody else's platform for better or worse they have they obviously will police it no matter what your opinion is and a company like youtube probably has more open-minded people than maybe some other platforms policing this but 
at the same time, if they think that what you're posting to their site is maybe not as open-minded, they might delete your content. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. That's just kind of the reality of how I see that. Do you, what are your thoughts around services like YouTube policing content? Because in a lot of cases, they're wiping out people's livelihood or at least part of their livelihood. Yeah. Um, my thoughts are it's, it's going to happen, right? I mean, you, sure. you cannot get around that. I, I don't know YouTube as well as I do Facebook. Okay. Well, same thing, though, you, right? Right. Exactly that. I, I can tell you Facebook spends billions sure. and thousands of people in what I think they call safety and security, which is, I mean, for example, young kids were committing suicide uh, on Facebook Live. Yeah. So that is not something you want to happen. Yeah. Um, so interestingly, what happens when you take measures is people get ticked off. Uh, in that particular instance, Facebook came up with these incredibly elaborate and I think clever um, uh, algorithms to get a sense of when something that horrible was about to happen just for the postings online, that there was a possibility that this, this person might be committing uh, suicide and put and created this, this network where um, responders were, were immediately alerted. Okay. Right. Um, what happened was not, Oh, thank you, Facebook for, um, for preventing suicide, but what the hell are you doing trampling on our privacy? See, so yeah, it, it's, it's a, these enormous platforms have to police themselves. Right. If I were to have a complaint is that it's very opaque how they do that. Okay. Okay. They, what do you they, mean by that? I mean, they don't put out a set of very clear rules and regulations that they say, well, if you, cause sometimes people get taken down. Right. And the question is, what is it? Where do where does it read that that person violated anything that you have said previously uh, would not be allowed in your platform? And the answer is, well, we we just made this up, right? I mean, a lot of yeah. times, because it's it is. Look, these are people mostly. If you want to, the, the human aspect of it, uh, who run these platforms, these these are people who are in their their own way very idealistic in a sort of hippy-dippy way and and would love to have uh, as open a platform as possible in that sense. They're, I don't think they're into it to control uh, to control the um, uh, conversation. Sure. But then they, they get they get these gigantic, well, first of all, the questions of legality, if people make death threats and things like that, well, that has to be addressed. Sure. Uh, suicide again. Um, and then they get all this uh, public opinion, mostly from the elites, saying, "Well, why are you allowing these opinions to be uh, broadcast in, in your platform?" And and they have to make a call as to to what extent are these people are just unhappy because perfectly legitimate opinions that never used to be heard before are now being heard, sure. and to what and to what extent are these opinions actually in some way, you know, uh, either criminal or offensive in, in an egregious way, and nobody's ever going to be happy where, where they draw the line. Sure. Do you think though? people get too offended by things nowadays or, or or have we always just been like that it's just been brought more to the forefront with the internet 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, I tend to think that there is a generational aspect there. Okay. Um, I don't ever recall people. I'm a baby boomer. Sure. And we had, believe me, we had our dysfunctions more than our share. Sure. But that that particular one of feeling vulnerable, feeling triggered, feeling offended, you know, that was not one of them. I think I think that's a developed art. I think there are there are tremendously delicate um, uh, individuals out there who, at, at, as a as a way of promoting the ideals they believe in, have antennas that reach out uh, into the slightest little variation or deviation from those ideals, and then proclaim themselves to be offended, and then demand that that, that uh, violation of their ideals be somehow squelched. Um, that's my take on that. And I think, honestly, the millennials have taken this to some kind of extreme that sometimes it's even hard for me to understand. I mean, young people tend to be pretty hardy. Uh, um, us older people, if we, if we feel threatened, you can see why. But, yeah, I mean, you guys, you, you're very robust. You can bounce back. Nobody, nobody need be um, – you don't need safe spaces. You can, you can deal with the world as it is, I think. Interesting. I, I think the other thing, too, that I want your, your thoughts around is it seems to me that the, the more you can handle for better or worse and let it roll off you and kind of just let go, whether the person's right or wrong, you can't let some of that stuff affect you and ruin where you're trying to go in life, right? If you get so hung up with trying to fix other people's opinions, sometimes I feel like you end up wrecking your own career path or, or where you're trying to go. Do you, do you agree with that or have you found that? Or maybe people just need to stop caring so much what other people think of them or what they're trying to do and actually just figure out where they need to go in life and, and stop worrying about other people. Like, have you found that or well, what are your thoughts around that? Well, remember what I said about being an analyst. Sure. I, I think, honestly, the, it, it, our environment is so fast changing. Yeah, so we, I, I get asked a lot. Sure, so, I can imagine. What, what, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? And I say, okay, let's figure out where we are before we figure out what to do. Because the environment is so fast changing that the place you're at may not be where you think you are. Okay? Sure. And I, and I think... If somebody disagrees with you very vehemently, yep. the first question you ought to ask is, huh, what makes that person think something that seems so strange to me? What is it? What? Don't assume that it, that is a bad person or a stupid person. That that, that sometimes is, is the, the, the normal assumption. Right. Assume assume that they are just as smart as you are, and just as well read and, and educated as you are, and just as well meaning as you are. So how can you get to that? very strange position being all those things. And if you understand that, I think, once you understand that, you can deal with that person in a much more persuasive way from your own ideals than just by yelling back. You yell back and honestly, all, all you have is a shouting match. Right. If, you, if you understand why that person came to believe what they believed and you respect that path, you can then attempt to persuade them to a new path because you, you know where that path has been. Otherwise, it's just, you know, they're stupid or they are 
bad people or they're being misled by somebody or and well if somebody tells you that as an argument you're stupid you're bad you you are being bamboozled by people you're gonna change your mind you just gotta get angry that's yeah, what you're gonna do it's how you handle it right well it's wisdom is understanding that people that disagree with you and the people that you, yeah i think i think um, and that's always been the case. The internet makes that very difficult because the people that, um, that get, like I said, the most attention tend to be the ones that are the most vehement and loud and, and sure. frank, frankly obnoxious uh, because they get attention. But if you understand why they're doing that, and there's a perfectly logical and reasonable explanation why they do it, then you kind of see what the game is. Sure. No, that's interesting. Yeah. No, I, I'm actually it, – it seems to be – the people that are the most successful are the ones that are willing to hear and understand where others are coming from, but also push themselves out of their own comfort zone while doing that. And and then those are the people that truly change the world, right? Is, is, are the ones that just kind of accept those things and, and try to figure things out and understand and and constantly learn. And I think the older you get, the more and more you realize you really have no idea what's actually going on or or how little you actually know. At least that's what I think. I've kind of noticed. I'm 36, just so you have some context, right? It's like as, the older I get, I'm like, wow, I know so little about most things, right? Well, you've just described my life. I mean, when I was a young man, I knew everything. Sure. Okay? And – Right now, I know almost nothing. And yeah, I wake up every morning and look at events, and I'm supposed to be an expert, and I go, this is the most incredibly crazy and confusing era and, and, and circumstance that, that I have ever lived through. Um, the young me would have said, oh, I get it, I'm smart, and I would have chosen some path or some side or something. Uh, the old me just stands back and wants to understand as much as possible. And, sure. and, I, and I think... Um, I mean, honestly, there's, the digital environment pressures you to take sides. They're they're always Interesting. they're always kind of um, hurting you in a certain direction. Um, and I think we part of I think us. I mean, the digital environment is very new. It's a gigantic transformation. I call it the fifth wave of information. Interesting. Um, it 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 is the equivalent of the when the printing press was was invented. So we're just at the tippy beginning, tippy end beginning of this era okay and i think part of growing into it is going to be learning individually not to be herded into um camps and positions that we frankly don't feel that powerfully about but even if when we agree with them uh and and that being put in there prevents us from them understanding what is what are all the other opposing voices uh how did they get there right they, they, all, all you're being asked to do is just Join your camp and shout back, and and that that seems to be uh, almost like the law of gravity of the web. Interesting. Um, and 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 um and I think we should fight the law of gravity. Yeah. Okay. What else do you see, or where do you see the future of all this stuff going? Or do you have any predictions? I have no predictions. Remember what I said. I okay. I'm, interesting. I I complete disbeliever in in prophecy, but I know what is hanging out there uh, to be decided by us okay and the reason i don't make predictions is because we all have we all make choices and when you have 330 million people making choices it gets awfully complicated and to, if you think you can predict that good luck sure um, 
but we have choices. Okay. I, I, I think we have an elite class. I mean, essentially, my my uh, take on on, what's, on our moment is there are these institutions that were shaped in the industrial age. They're very slow moving. They're very hierarchical. They're um, uh, they're filled and staffed by people who have gone through a, a lengthy process of accreditation. And that that industrial world is now being swept away by the information tsunami. It's just being battered. So the, the, the authority that these institutions had, starting with government, but the media as well, it, it's, it's just bleeding away. Um, the question is, how do we restore authority? There is no way you can live in a, in, in a world as fractured as ours is today in any kind of permanent sense. So I think in some ways authority has to be um, restored. And the question is, and it's gonna be restored around an elite class. You cannot have a enormous country like ours and pretend like it's gonna be you know, Athenian democracy where we'll vote on everything. It's not gonna happen. You need somebody in charge of, of, of institutions. The institutions need to be flatter, but they're gonna be there. So the question is, what about the elites? And that is, I mean, to all your listeners, I would say, think about the people that you vote for, think about the people that you give money for politically, but also think about the people that um, are uh, in the TV shows that you watch and the movies that you watch and the books that you read. These are the elites that you are selecting, okay? And my take, honestly, is that the current elite, and I, I'm not a revolutionary uh, by any means, Sure. Uh, uh, I, I, but my take, and I thought about it really hard, and as I was thinking it really hard, the, the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke, and this enormous Me Too thing happened where our elite class was ravaged because of these incredibly bizarre perks that these men in, in power and, 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 and positions of authority were appropriating for themselves. And I just came to the decision, um, we need we need to select a whole new elite class with very different values values that are attuned to the digital age, not to the industrial age. Uh, the idea of some guy standing in a tower and the, the top floor of a tower in a suite making decisions, that, that has got to change, I think. We need people who understand that now they can be criticized by the public. Now that they are, in a sense, the public is sitting in that, in that office suite right next to them because that's what the digital world does. So nothing you do is secret anymore. Nothing you do is... Um, uh, granted to you by your place in the hierarchy, you have to earn it every day. Um, and I think, I think if you ask me about the future, I would hope. I'm not going to predict, but I would hope it would bring a new elite class that is more attuned to this new environment, that is more honest, that is more courageous, uh, and uh, has more integrity than than the people we have uh, in the elite class today. Interesting. But what are your thoughts around, because it seems to be as more and more people become entrepreneurial, they're, they're taking their own future into their own hands. And, and it seems to me anyway that more and more people almost don't care about the, who's in power because they just don't trust any of them. And so... They're putting their own future in their own hands because of the global marketplace that we talked about earlier, right? That if if you create a business online that sells globally, 
sure, if one country has a recession or is going through some some hard times, you just pivot your business and go after uh, business in another country. And, and then once that other country recovers, maybe you go back there or maybe you figure out how to make money through a recession or, or other things. What is your thoughts around that kind of mindset? Yeah, that that I think that is a very powerful and very liberating um, um, development. I when I was in San Francisco, I talked to one guy who I believe it was sandals. I want to say sandals. He just made sandals. Okay. He manufactured, but he sold them online to the world. Sure. Uh, so he had this very niche market. And I mean, listening to him, I thought, well, this is this is incredible. I mean, this is this is a, the kind of thing that could not possibly have happened at any number of levels when I was a young man. However, sure. um, if you care about democracy, and, and remember, I, I was born in Cuba. Right. Um, by the time I was ten years old, I had lived in a dictatorship of the right and a dictatorship of the left. Okay. So I know. I know what not democracy looks like and sounds like. So if you care about democracy, that that's national. And you you gonna you're not gonna want uh, Canada uh, Canadians to vote in American elections, and nor do they want us to vote in theirs. So you have to work out how can we create uh, a discussion space and an information space that it, that has enough authority to it that we can agree it's it's legitimate. What's happening now is whoever gets elected, the other side says you're illegitimate. We don't buy it. We don't think you really are the president. So um, you know, it happened to Obama in a sense with the Tea Party and it happened to Trump practically the day he got uh, elected. So um, we can't continue like that and expect democracy to function as it, as it is intended. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting, right? Because yeah, it's it's quite fascinating just how how people see that right and um and how well I I think I love the fact that people have been taking their own kind of destiny in their own hands and I I think that inspires others to do the same thing but but I do agree with you that you do need some sort of authority around everything or there's just chaos but. How that comes to be, I, I think it needs to change, and I think a lot of people think it needs to change, and, and it's really easy for me to say that because I don't really have any good ways of making that change happen other than getting more and more people out to to build technology to actually make change, right? And I think that's one thing that a lot of people have the ability to do now because it can literally cost hundreds of dollars to get a company up and going and, and you start building technology to change some of this stuff that you're not happy with. And I, I love to see what people end up building, right, in the coming years. Yeah. And honestly, and I think it's going to be a, in part a generational change. Sure. Uh, a lot of these despicable elites that I finally decided really did not deserve to be where they were. They were also baby boomers. Uh, and just uh, Father Time will have his way with them, um, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree that there is this opportunity for people to um, both express and and uh, commercialize on an individual basis um, in a way that that was not possible before. Um, you do have though 
a lot of choice. You are also you, but not just your podcast, which is a, a big, big megaphone for you, but but you personally have you vote you 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 give attention to certain people to the extent that we give attention to people who are, for example, liars. Well, then people are going to lie because yeah, they're, getting, they're getting attention. I mean, what what my feeling is, the industrial age produced politicians that gave us solutions, right? That's what the word they say. How do you solve the, solve the problem of inequality? Solve the, the problem of joblessness? Well, that's assuming that these immensely complicated political, economic, and social relationships are like a mathematical equation that can be solved, okay? And of course, yeah, they, can't, interesting. they can't be solved. So... It is in, we demand of our elites that they give us these vast solutions, and then we we basically devour them and tear them to bits when they can't after we've elected them or whatever. So I tell you what, if I ever hear a politician say, I'm not sure, or if he says, you know, I tried that thing and it, it didn't work. We're going to try the next thing now. The way, that, for example, an entrepreneur would, right? If you Sure. If you tried an approach and it didn't get, you go for the next. I mean, how many people have failed again and again before they hit uh, the actual product? Everyone or, basically. <laughs> pretty much everyone basically. That and and that's actually when you look at a human life, that's how it works. Sure. So why we expect our politicians to be never wrong? And uh, so and it's us that demand of them, and they have, of course, their background as industrial um, elites lead them to think that that's the way they need to talk and. Um, so the the first the first politician that says I'm not sure I'm going to vote for that person okay I'm going to vote for that that person. But Martin, we're we're kind of coming to the end of the show, so let's close with mentioning where people can get the book, get more information about all the stuff you've written about online, and any other links you want to mention. Yeah. Okay. So. Um... The book is on Amazon, and it, it's, like I said before, in a very beautiful uh, hardcover version, but also in Kindle and also on audiobooks. Um, and I also uh, have a, a, a blog called The Fifth Wave. So if you just kind of um, Google Fifth Wave and Gurry, you, you got me pretty much. Um, and I, I post, basically, it, the, the, the blog is kind of like my ongoing research an ongoing um, thought process um, so that it, the, the ideas of the book are reflected there and uh, actually got some some of the posts made it into the book in very changed ways but because the, the ideas that I had developed in the blog led to the book in some sense. Yeah, interesting. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Yeah, hey, Kevin, it's been great. Thank you very much. Okay, Take care. bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com. And keep building the future. <laughs>